everybody. We are uh, in the sixth uh, installment of the TGSS uh, digital edition, international digital edition. And our today's speaker is uh, Lucia Galli. She is um, a research fellow at the um, um, Centre Recherche de, what's the Civilisation de l'Asie Orientale in Paris and a member of the Ecole Pratique des Hautes Etudes where she's currently working within the framework of the research project Social Status in the Tibetan World. She holds a DPhil in Oriental Studies uh, from the University of Oxford with a thesis on the uh, Ningdep of the 20th century Kampa trader Katak Zamyak. And today she's going to speak about factional facts or factional fiction, the sociality behind Katak Zamyak's diary and uh, Lakpa Dundrup's uh, The Life of a Muleteer. Lucia, start your screen sharing and yes. listen patiently. So please bear with me because I'm not very much technically saving myself. Uh, and here we are. Okay, I think we are all set. So first of all, I would like to thank Daniel for inviting me and of course all of you for joining me. Before diving into my presentation, I just would like to engage you in a sort of mental exercise. So please humor me. As some of you may know, um, Xaver that I see is in uh, the audience. So. And I have been working on a two volume project on Tibetan life writing and we have just recently drafted the editorial for the last issue, which uh, concerned the most unconventional and in many ways lesser known, known aspects of the Namtar genre, a term that I'm here using in its more um, in the largest and broadest sense of life story. So while we were reflecting on the way secular elements seep into the overarching dominant narrative of salvation that is generally associated with hagiography, I could not but wonder about the way reality and perception mingle in the biographical narrative and how labels such as fiction and non-fiction, and I'm here using air quotes for a reason, may be deceptively simple. So here comes my mental exercise for you. Um, imagine having just joined a book club and that the reading, the first reading that um, your pals have chosen is a biography of Winston Churchill. So you get into your favorite bookstore, uh, you uh, know it, the place inside out. And so I bet you will head straight to the nonfiction section without even blinking an eye, right? Easy peasy. Now let's fast forward a month. This time the choice falls on Survival in Auschwitz by Primo Levi and the Italianists among, among you probably know it with the Italian title which is Sequestro un uomo, if this is a man. Um, would that give you a pause when entering the shop or would you be certain to find it in the same place of the previous book? I'm asking you this because personally I would have some hesitations. The work is mainly a memoir, yet the image conjured, by, conjured up by Levy, the writer, diverges from the idea that we might have of the grim reality of a concentration camp. Through his poetic prose, the author morphed, morphs history into fiction, regardless of the fact that he wrote about real events that took place at a real time and a real place. 
The truth of the experience recounted in the memoir is not that of the haunted, damaged survivor that we might expect, but that of the average man who experienced firsthand an historical condition of subjection and humiliation. I believe this preamble to be an important premise to the sort of questions that motivate today's talk. My presentation revolves, in fact, around two specific Tibetan works, Anindep, or a non-fictional narrative written by a Kampa trader named Katak Damyak, and a social realist novel, Trepemitze, or Life of a Muleteer, by Lachva Dondrup. At a first glance, these two texts are extremely different. On one hand, we have what appears to be a factual work, and on the other, what we would categorize as a creative writing. Nevertheless, the conventional divide between facts and fiction, and I'm here again using air quotes, is blurrier than theory would like us to believe. Since we know that autobiographical writing and the nintep is indeed a first person recollection of events, is not about verisimilitude. It is, however, about iterability and its sincerity. It's not what appears to be true, but what is narrated as true. In other words, the autobiographical text, in spite of, and even by, creating fiction, still presents the truth, that being the truth of the self. This is particularly accurate, I believe, in the case of Tibet, since life writing, and especially Namta and Rangnam, constitute a massive part of the Tibetan literary corpus, regardless of, or more precisely because of, the Buddhist doctrine that sees in the attachment to the self the cause for karmic sufferance and bondage. At a closer look, in fact, most of Tibetan biographical and autobiographical writings present features, both in their structure and in their themes, that find in the Jataka literature, so in Buddha's life stories, the original model. The indigenous persona depicted in these works reflected, reflects the concept of social personhoods promoted by religious and cultural media of the time. Biographies and autobiographies affected the individual self-perception at all levels of society by providing specific behavioral models as a frame of reference. In their adherence to or refusal of these schemas, the personas portrayed in Namtar and Rangnam illuminate the process of identity construction within the Tibetan society, at the same time contributing to shape and or modify it. The next Nintep is a perfect example of the construction of a social ego through the textual expression of an interiorized concept of personhood. Before we go any further though, I briefly pause to give you an abridged version of the story narrated in the work in question. The Nindep comes to us as a published Western style book edited by the Tibet House in Delhi and printed by the Indaprashta Press in 1997. From the foreword, we know that the text, originally on scroll papers, was part of the Hotel's family archives and that it was Danyag's nephews who first acknowledged the potential benefit that such a work could bring to the Tibetan community at large. By the 1990s, the diaspora was extremely active in editing and publishing personal narratives for preservation purposes. And it is easy to understand that a factual account based on diary entries taken during a crucial period of modern Tibetan history 
could not fail to attract the attention of indigenous and foreign scholars alike. The events described in the NIDEP span over a 14 year period between 1944 and 1958. I do apologize if in the slides is written 1956, there is a reason for that. And if you're interested, I can um, elaborate further. Um, these years were mainly spent by the author journeying, trading and pilgrimaging between the central provinces of Utsang and the trade hubs and holy sites of India and Nepal. Although categorized by the editors as a nintep, a Tibetan term that is often used as an equivalent to the English umbrella term diary, the text is clearly a recollection of events. There is, in other words, a certain distance in time and in space between the narrating self and the narrated self. The opening line on the Nintep is dated 1944 and introduces the author's decision to leave Rabshi, one of the territorial divisions of the Kingdom of Nanchen in Kham, setting off on what he defines, the author himself defines, pilgrimage without any fixed direction. The reasons for what would turn out to be a lifelong exile must be sought in a feud that in 1940 opposed the ruling households of Rabshi to some of the major reincarnations of the local Gilu monastery. Long story short, Zamyak found himself involved in the ruler's retaliation to the death of the household's heir, allegedly carried out by one of the Gelu Chuku. Incarcerated in 1940, it was put to trial and found guilty. In spite of his claim to innocence, his properties and estate were confiscated and he was ousted, in his own words, as a new beggar, as a sergeant. The following years saw Zamyang's gradually improving his social status up to his appointment as a Tsongpong, a chief merchant, of, of one of the monastic estates of the Sakya Monastery on Nore Wan Chuden in Tsang in 1952. Albeit presented as diary entries, the events reported in the Nintep were not recorded in the moment, but rather recollected and narrativized at another time. As we know, the narrative process is in its own nature, constructive and imaginative. Although restrained by moral concerns for truthfulness, any autobiographical text based on one's own memory is somehow crafted and arbitrary to the point that it's not possible to equate actuality with non-fiction. The assumption that autobiographical writing contains sentences, and I'm here quoting Cole, possessing a truth value, end quote, that the work, in other words, relates to a reality outside the text, and that this connection can be verified, is at the base of the conflict between autobiography and fiction, perceived as they are as conceptual opposites. Nevertheless, many literary theorists have started questioning whether autobiography and fiction may really be considered antonymous, for it is, as Royal Pascals puts it, fictionalization and not fiction that impedes the claims to factuality that are the core of autobiography. The latter, in fact, unavoidable entails narrativization, for, and I'm here quoting Pascal once again, it imposes a pattern on life, constructs out of it a coherent story. It establishes certain stages in an individual life, makes links between them, and defines implicitly or explicitly a certain consistency or relationship between the self and the outside world." End quote. 
that being said, it is also undeniable that life itself has an inherent structure. In order to have experiences, in fact, one should have them one at a time. And life itself is not a random cluster of occurrences, occurrences without relation to one another, but rather each event finds its focus of attraction in the experiencing subject, which orders them in a chronological sequence, placing them into context to form the structure of his or her life in its entirety. Those experiences are intrinsically not ontological and depend on temporality, as well as the cultural, social, and historical conditions in which the subject lives. In the next case, the evaluation aspect, that is to say the task of placing sequential events in terms of a meaningful context, is fulfilled through the self-identification self with the figure of the 11th century Tibetan yogi Milarepa. Samyak stands by the sinner becomes saint scheme at the core of the most popular version of the life story of the saint, composed in the 15th century by Tsanyong Eroka. The trader feels a strong affiliation with Milarepa. As the latter, he suffered oppression and was forced to leave his ancestral land, embarking on pilgrimages without any fixed goal. And his narrative repeatedly infers to the author's desire to cleanse his karma thus conforming to the powerful paradigm that Milarepa's Namta had become for many generations of Tibetans. Intertextuality plays a fundamental role in the Nintep. As a matter of fact, the presence of what Smith defined ideological eye, that is to say, the concept of personhood culturally available to the narrator when he tells the story, is particularly relevant to the point that I'm raising. For the ideological eye, not only reflects the social and intertextual embedding of Zamyang's narrative, but it also reveals the way in which the traditional structures and institutions of self-representation are actively engaged and interpreted throughout the Ninda. That brings us to the title of my talk, am I referring to Zamyang's diary entries as fictional facts? In the already mentioned forewords to the edited version of the work, the factual character of the Nintap is presented as the main motivation for its editing and publication. The non-literary function of the account is put up front, making it almost impossible to question its truthfulness. I would like to suggest a different approach to the matter, though, by considering, on the contrary, the literary function of the Nintap. As an oration of the self, the text lends itself to an erotological approach which allows us to investigate the process of identity construction of the author and the way his life is made to conform to culturally validated narrative forms. Without undermining doing so, its value has historical source. It is important to stress once again, the narrativization does not necessarily equate with fictionalization. Autobiography is conceived as a true account of facts or to quote Zamyak's, and I'm here quoting him, True words explain the action, the actions, the words, the objects, etc., as they really were. End quote. But the truth is not to be found in the past, for only fragments of it can be recalled. And whatever truth or fact that occurred in the past is therefore beyond any mnemonic effort. It is in the present and in the act of writing and recollecting that the truth must be sought. To borrow Mary Warnock's words, and I'm here quoting, 
To claim to remember something is to claim to know what it was like, because I was physically and geographically there and I have not forgotten. There is thus a truth, a truth claim in any account of what I remember, a claim in which in some cases cannot be challenged, end quote. It would be pointless to theorize autobiographical writing and its value on the base of the relationship between what is narrated and the factual accuracy of that narration. If the truth can be found in each human life, then the process of connecting each individual experience to one another to select and organize the whole in a narrative must be truthful as well. Through this prospective retrospective principle of organization, so the act of relating present to past and to future or parts to the whole, the author's reality becomes the reality, his or her truth, the truth. The autodiagetic nature of the Nintab provides another interesting feature to reflect upon. That is to say, the dual structural core of the autobiographical first-person pronoun, a self that is both narrating and narrated. The narrating self, in recollecting the memory of past events, revises them retrospectively, thus becoming the agent of focalization, the point from which the story is told. By selecting specific elements considered to be relevant from the virtually endless moments of experience composing one's own life, the narrating self endows the past with present influence meaning, thus connecting the there and then with the here and now. Another element worth keeping in mind in our discussion about fiction and facts is the rhetorical aspect of autobiographical writing. That is to say, the commitment towards a certain event of presumptions about oneself, one's relation to others, one's view of the world, and one's place in it. In the text, Zamex described himself as a Nekowa, as a circunambulator, a pilgrim. But his self-perception does not necessarily mirror the kind of behavior that emerged from his account. Since most of his visits to sacred sites, both inside and outside the Tibetan plateau, appear to have been incidental to pre-arranged business trips. Nevertheless, the archetypical persona with whom Zamyags decide to identify himself cannot be dismissed as a, mer dismissed as a mer merely fictional. In presenting himself as a satrang, as a new beggar, the author in fact combines the rhetoric of self-justification, so why he behaves in a certain way, with the requirements of the Namtsar narrative. In his account, Zamex amply draws for the pool of cultural interpretation and traditional literature, his desire to follow the step of the enlightened renunciate, hampered by the necessity of accommodating unavoidable material needs. In discussing Western autobiographical narratives, Brunner draws attention to the marking of these episodes in the narrator's life that lead to decisive changes in a particular belief, conviction, or situation, calling them turning points. These are understood by the scholar as a feature, and I'm here quoting, crucial to the effort to individualize a life, to make it clearly and patently something more than a running off automatic folk, folk psychological canonicality. I would like to argue that in the NINDAP, the function performed by the marking of this narrative point, turning point is opposite to the one described by Brunner, since it inevitably invariably reconciles Zamyag's narration 
to the traditional life story that he has chosen as an ideal model, that is Milarepa's Nampa. It is in fact the human need to narrate one's own existence, thus giving it a retrospective shape and meaning that calls for the recourse to socially and culturally acceptable storylines and discourses appropriately adapted to one's own situation. Senek's narrative is punctuated by three major turning points. And you will see in the slides, um, in her quotes are just the uh, quotes from uh, the text. So these are Zanyak's words. The first turning point is the author's acceptance of his conditions. Forced to abandon his ancestral land after enduring a trial, the dispossessed trader eventually renounced his claims to a reinstatement and fully embraced his conditions finding the archetypical figure of the wandering Peligrin Milarepa a socially and culturally acceptable concept of personhood to which he could conform. The second turning point in the Nintap narrative must be sought in the author's final acknowledgement of the impossibility to return to his ancestral land. By taking the figure of Milarepa as his ideological eye, the trader embarks on a journey that is both physical and spiritual. Although initially directed at the improvement of his own personal situation, Zanyak's merit-making enterprise grew to embrace all beings towards which he dedicated most of his ultimate ritual activities. It is in the identification with the great saint that fictional elements come into play. In spite of the constant referral to Milarepa's narrative, in fact, the Nintap reveals the image of a man much involved in worldly matters. Most of his pilgrimages were the, collated, uh, sorry, the collateral outcome of business ventures. It is worth noticing the constructive process behind the narrated self, which appears to be, to all intents and purposes, a creation of the retrospective reflection of the narrating self. As in any autobiographical narrative, there is in the Nindep a desire to resolve ambiguity, to give a sense to one's own life, the text being a testimony to the author's spiritual growth. The appeasing effect of the second turning point, so Zamyak's self-identification with Milarepa, did not, however, have a long-lasting effect. Despite his best intentions, the trader struggled to adhere with the detached, otherworldly attitude traditionally expected from hermits. Most of the religious activities performed by Zamyak between 1944 and 1952 sought a mundane result good health, financial security, or social stability. Although described in the Nintab as pilgrimages, Samek's visits to the sacred places of the plateau were de facto incidental to planned business trips and as such subject to strict uh, schedules and predetermined itineraries. Whereas the author provide an account based on truths, that is to say facts, his recollection is not truthful since they consciously emphasize the spiritual aspect of the journey, dismissing the actual motivation behind them. So next, adds on, um, sorry, the third turning point in the Nindab is Samyak's appointment as a trade agent for one of the large rung of a sake establishment or Nore Wanshoden, an event that goes almost unnoticed among the endless listing of ritual activities and empowerments received by the Hoto in the same period. The Water Dragon Year, 1952, marks the end of the author's incapacity to reconcile material and mundane needs with soteriological and spiritual desires. The inner split caused by the forced coexistence of conflicting behavioral models. So on one hand, we have 
the wandering pilgrims, and on the other we have the trader, is finally overcome. At the end of, the of a five-month stay at Norewan Chudan, Zamyangs is a different man. By means of an active particip participation in the oral transmission of the laundry system by the 65th Norchan himself, the trader, according to his own self-understanding and self-representation, realizes the fundamental unity of samsara and nirvana. The quality of a Buddha already present in any human being can only be obtained through the removal of obscuration and the transformation of one's own body, speech, and mind. Less and less interested in mundane gains, Zamiak shifts his concern towards the afterlife and the accumulation of merits for the sake of all beings. Although an important step, step on the path to spiritual growth of the narrative itself, Zamiak's internalization of the core meaning of the laundry system does not represent in itself a turning point in the narrative. On the contrary, the key factors leading to a crucial change in the narrative flow that is uh, the appointment, his appointment as a trade agent, must be sought in his attendance and active involvement in the empowerments and ritual sessions performed on Ore One. At the time of his stay at the Saki establishment, the author often joined his Dharma companion, Rinchen Dorje, another Tsumpong from Trehor, in Kam, in conspicuous offerings to both the monastic community and the masters bestowing the empowerments. By promoting his image as a devout sponsor, affiliated with influential people such as Rinchen and the Sadutsang, of whom he was a trade agent, Zamyags certainly attracted the attention of the Ladron treasurer. Paradoxically, his spiritual and soteriological interests further is worthy recognition and success in emerging of religious and economic elements, thus virtually closing the, the, the circle of Zamyag's narrative. I have so far put to the fore the fictional aspect of the Nintep and how they are functional to the expression of an indigenous form of personhood. I will now turn my attention to what I define in my title as a factual fiction, that is, Lacha Drup de Pemitze, a novel that has been defined by um, Françoise Robin as um, one of the most interesting examples of Tibetan fictional narratives dealing with the first half of the 20th century, and I agree with her. The style is very uh, clean and crisp and sober. And La Fadondrup describes uh, the everyday life of middle and lower classes, expressing without any poetic hyperboles or romantic nostalgia, the inner mechanism of a society that at the time of the writing was long gone. It is in the attention to the details and the realism of the narrative that the factual essence of the novel emerges in all its strength. Lachba Dondrup gives the impression of recording faithfully an actual way of life, as if he himself had been present at the time. And that is, to a certain extent, the truth. Born in Paris in 1932, Lachba Dondrup attends first a private school in Lhasa and later a Tibetan public school where he mastered Tibetan poetry, drama, and correct spelling. In his youth, he worked as a trader between Indian and Hassa, just getting a first-hand experience on the root condition and local costumes described in his works. His trading business reached an abrupt end with the democratic reforms when he was forced to work as a manual laborer, and as many of the artists and writers, he too suffered physical and emotional abuses during the Cultural Revolution. 
After the convention of the 11th plenary session of the Central Committee uh, in 1978, Plakhva became a member of Tibetan Writers Association and took active part in cultural revival projects, working not only on the translation, preservation and analysis of, the, of Tibetan texts, but contributing with original works, be they novels, articles, poems, prayer verses, textual analysis and folk stories up to his death in 1994. Jeppe Mitze narrates the personal and social growth of uh, Dawa Prunzuk, simply known in the novel Dapun, a young miser from Garo, a fictional branch estate in Tsang. The story begins with the death of Dapun's father, Trashi, who used to be the leader of the local donkey drivers, men sent from Garo to Hassa and back as hired means of transport. Ordered to replace his father, Dapun leaves his family, thus beginning a journey that will transform him from a boy into a man. The novel presents some literary topoi, such as the overcoming of moral flaws, filial piety, fatalistic acceptation of karma, and self-sacrifice. But the grace with which Hlafa Drondrup describes his characters and the careful depiction of daily events offer much to the curiosity of the social historian. In the final part of my presentation, I will compare excerpts from both the Nindap and the Drepa Mitze. I have chosen passages that deal with similar topics in order to highlight the amount of factual information contained in Lakpatondrup novel, despite its fictional essence. It is important at this point to record that Tsemiaks belonged, as Lakpatondrup, to the intermediate social group, to use a traverse definition. A status much higher than that of a mere muleteer, which is the position that Pun eventually gained before modernity, with scars and paved roads swept away pack animals and their drivers. When reading both the Nintep and the Pemitze, one of the first features that comes to attention is the fatigue and perils the traveling entails. Sudden changes of weather, treacherous footpaths, thieves and loss of animals or merchandise loom over the narratives, bearing heavily on the mind of real and fictional characters alike. The next in particular had quite a few accidents over the years. The, years. the following passage is dated to the first months of 1945, when it was a guest of the Yago household, the ruling family of Sentang, a site on the right side of the Jichu River. Although suffering from rheumatic fever, the trader was determined to attend an empowerment ritual at the local hermitage. When it was the time to leave, his health had severely deteriorated, as he himself noted, and I'm here uh, reading from um, the diary. At the end of that, which is uh, the empowerment session, all the disciples made offerings in the presence of the Lama as a gesture of gratitude and returned to their own places. As for me, since my conditions were very serious and in that state, there was no hope for me to ride a horse or a pack animal, relying on the great kindness of the mother of the Yago household, Pella, and the manager, Sonam, I was transported on a palakin by many men. Unfortunately for Zamyag, fever and rheumatism became the least of his problems once an unexpected event took place on his way back to the Yago's palace. Quoting again, because we had to go by a very difficult path, and because of the narrowness of the road, I fell into a precipice from my uplifted position and broke two or three ribs. I lay down for two months, and since I was unable to move, at that time I suffered from bed sores on the back of my body. 
At that time, I was in great pain and I became helpless. But I took the medicines and the food that Mother Pella gave me, and through her kind care, I recovered in a short time. Animals fared no better due to the narrowness of mountain passes and heavy loads. Even crossing rivers by bridges and coracles required a certain degree of dexterity. Again, in Zamiak's words, we camped on Pundo, on the other side of a narrow bridge. That day, a nomad from Sanshun, a covey laborer who was driving the animals, being unable to cross the iron bridge and not knowing what to do, moved together with the pack horses towards the water. The nomad immediately grasped the tail of my riding horse, and even though it slipped in the middle of the water, since it did not let go of the horse's tail, it was dragged out and free. Everyone laughed, and full of gratitude, he said, your horse took me out of the water and saved my life. Mixing water and uh, quadrupeds did not bear well for Dapun and his fellow companions either. So from uh, Mitze. When the three of them reached Nyansok, they drove the mules to a coracle and placed the loads, the saddles and the cushions and the rest inside it. Some mules were seized by halter ropes and led on. The remaining ones were freed into the water. The coracle on which men and things had been placed entered the stream. They followed the mules that had been made move ahead and they crossed the Tsampo River. Since all the pack mules were new without going directly into the Tsampo, they turned into the other direction and made to set off. The young mules that were near the coracles tried to climb into it. The river of Zhangshun uh, was very broad, flowing energetically with the crests of the waves rising high in the sky. The muleteers that were in the coracles were carried on on the other side of the river in a state of fright and terror. The last extracts are dedicated to India and the marvels of modernity. For many Tibetans, in fact, a pilgrimage to the holy sites of Buddhism represented a chance to personally experience new means of transport and entertainment. Not always the cultural shock and the language barrier could be easily soothed. Streets and railways too, to use Bowman's words, and I'm here quoting, may prove, may prove, to sorry, may prove obstacles rather than help, traps rather than thoroughfare. They may misguide, divert from the straight path, lead astray. As it was the case for Zamyang and his companion Rinchen Doje during their journey to India and Nepal in 1949. Again, quoting from uh, the diary. From Lumbini, we headed back to Nao Tanwa, reaching the village at midnight. From there, we moved back to Gorakhpur, and we ended up doing three trips instead of one. Due to the inexperience of our interpreter, not only we had to suffer some physical hardship and pay double train fare, but we passed through a station called the Balanapu, going a bit too far north. Since in the village of Shravasti, there were, many, sorry, there were blessed ruins, and such as that of the place where the Buddha gave food to the helpless in the Jatavana grove, I told the interpreter that in no way would I not visit the town. But the latter confused the two names, Balarpur and Gorakhpur, and we ended up going up and then down, missing Shravasti. We, so Zamyak and Rinchen Dorje, considered the fact of not being able to visit this holy place as a sign of former bad karma, and we prayed, feeling regretful. It was not an issue of misunderstanding, but rather mortal sickness that made Dapion's first ride on, in a car unforgettable. And I'm here quoting from uh, the J.P. Mitze. At midnight, uh, sorry, at midday, the Kumo, his wife, and the interpreter enter one of the two cars driven by Indian babus, with the four attendants and all the luggage squeezed inside the other. 
They left Kalimpong and its loud noise. They went down the mountain road from Kalimpong. When driving on, the stretch of the road in front of Dutton's eyes appeared like road surge. The buildings on the men on both sides weared by in a blurry haze. After a while, it felt dizzy and nauseous, and since nothing could be done about it, it took off his hat and covered his face. Tattoo did not help. As he developed an headache and unable to control himself any longer, he was about to throw up. Immediately, he opened his sleeves and vomited inside them. He arrived at Siliguri feeling dizzy and nauseous. When Dapun got out of the car, although feeling unsteady, he bore the discomfort and helped the lady to alight from the car. Because even the lady had been just like him, nauseous and had vomited a lot, her face had turned yellow and her walking was unstable. The extracts I presented here are just a small sample of the type of information a socio-historical approach to literature may provide. I'm here use the term literature, being well aware that one of the texts I introduced to you was originally a private document. The publication of Zamek's manuscript has changed status, transforming it into literature, and therefore allowing us to subject it to the same kind of scrutiny as applied to a novel, in this specific case, Dreper Nietzsche. In the first part of my talk, I have illustrated how, due to the narrativization process, Elements of fiction may be found in a non-fictional factual text, like the Nintep. At the same time, a novel as a Drepa Mitze may offer a wide array of historical truths, albeit through the eyes of fictional characters, thus inviting the scholars to investigate literature, not only from an aesthetic reason, but also as a source of historical and social information. Thank you. <laughs>